What I'd like to do, if you turn with me to Isaiah 36, Isaiah 36, and look there with me, and let me read from just verses 1 to 3, and we're going to let that be our focus this morning, verses 1 to 3, as we more introducing this entire passage and the lessons that we're going to learn here. And it says, Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Shennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. And the king of Assyria sent Rabshakeh from Lachish to Jerusalem to King Hezekiah with a large army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway of the fuller's field. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household in Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to him. Now, having read that, why don't you turn with me, because we're going to go there as well. Why don't you turn with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings, because we'll spend some time in 2 Kings, and it reads this way, for the most part, he, the same, notice verse 13 in 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18, it says, now in the 14th year of Hezekiah, Sennacherib king of Assyria came up against all the fortified cities of Jerusalem, and it says, and he did what? And he seized them. Then Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear it. So the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 300 talents of gold. Hezekiah gave him all the silver which was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. Gave it to the king of Assyria. And it goes on to say in verse 17, Then... The king of Assyria sent Tartan and Rapsaris and Rapshakah from Lachish to Hezekiah with a large army to Jerusalem. So they went up and came to Jerusalem. And when they went up, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway of the fuller's field. And when they called to the king, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came out to them. So these accounts, um, 2 Kings 18, giving us um, some detail that we don't see in Isaiah, and then Isaiah, also some detail that we don't see in 2 Kings. And the question for us is, how do we understand this? This great passage that is really calling us to serve the living God? How do we trust this living God? How do we live in such a way that we trust a God who is worthy to be trusted, a God who is incapable of failure? And this is what we have to really, in one sense, ingrain in our minds. Uh, We ourselves, at times, we strive, we try to do our best, we make promises to others, and even at times when our intentions are proper um, and we put forth all our efforts, At times we fail because we're capable of failure, and often we fail more than we would like. But when we think about the Lord, we have to remind ourselves of this great truth, which should be a comfort. God is incapable of failure, incapable of lying, incapable of breaking a promise, incapable of running out of resources, incapable of not knowing what is best incapable of not giving an all-wise decision, incapable of not being present, incapable of failure. And so we serve this God 
and we must train ourselves, and this is a process that we go through in sanctification. How do I trust God in these moments in life where I may feel overwhelmed? Circumstances are surely mounted against me, and so we can take a lesson that we learn here from this passage, and it's very real for our lives, everyday life. But what we must start with is this idea that I serve a God that is great and a God that is glorious and a God that's incapable of failure. And so if I can ingrain that into my mind, if that can be a part of my spirit, then whatever issue I face in life, whatever tragedy it may be, if there is a moment in life where the circumstances of life seem to be overwhelming, if I can't have that in my archives of my heart and of my mind, I can retrieve that from the archives of my heart and mind, and then I can inform my soul, I can inform my spirit that God is to be trusted. In one sense, you see that principle lived out in Psalm 42 and 43. And what does the psalmist do in both those psalms? You see three refrains, and he says, While you downcast, O my soul, why are you disturbed within me? And he says, Hope in God. For I shall yet again praise him. And why does the psalmist do that? He is in one sense counseling himself and saying the circumstances of life may seem to be too much for you. As a matter of fact, they are too much for you. You're downcast. You shouldn't be that way. And what he does, he pulls from his archives, if you, if you will. And he says, no, hope in God. And so this is an episode in scripture where hope is absolutely necessary. Trust is necessary. And what I want to do briefly is cover what we did from last week. And I'm going to go back to the last point at the end. I rushed through it just to finish it, but there was too much that I believe I left out. I'm going to go back to that and then take us into this text proper. And we begin to see that God is a God to be trusted. We already noted from last week that this is a passage where of contrast, a contrast of kings, Hezekiah and now um, Ahaz, or the opposite, Ahaz and now Hezekiah. It's surely a contrast of the great king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how both of them behave. It's a contrast of power. Is it the power of these gods of the world, or is it the power of God? It's the contrast of messiahs. That is, some would think, thought that the uh, fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14 would be Hezekiah, but indeed it's not. He is not that ultimate savior. And Isaiah would say, you must look beyond Hezekiah. He is failed. He has failed. He will fail. It's a contrast of gods. Uh, The Assyrians are saying, what other gods have delivered from the great king of Assyria, but yet now Yahweh is superior to those. The other gods are not even gods. It's also contrasting at places of worship. Hezekiah uh, would go to his place of worship and lay the letter before the Lord, and the Lord would give an answer, whereas um, Shanachar would go to his place of worship, and he would be killed. It's a place of a passage even of irony. As we noted in both those accounts, that what happens, the context for this pronouncement is that the Fuller's field, at the conduit at the Fuller's field. And that's where in chapter 7, Isaiah has come to Ahaz and says, Trust the Lord. Yes, the Syrians and yes, the northern tribes are coming against you, but you should trust in the living God. So he calls him to trust there, but instead he does not do that. What does he do? He makes an alliance with the Assyrians. And now the very country that he made an alliance with that was supposed to protect him from the Syrians and from the northern tribes, now they are his enemy. So there's a bit of irony that's there. We might even say it's sort of a bit of poetic justice that is taking place. And it's also a passage that shows us the promise and fulfillment of prophecy. God is saying that now I will protect you for 35 chapters, and now we see it fulfilled here in these chapters. It's revenge. God is saying, I will take revenge on the nations, and he does. It's a promise of peace, and only God can bring this peace. It's a promise of punishment because the people of God have now strayed from the Lord, and God is saying, I will punish you by sending you away. It's also a passage that has significant historical 
um, importance for us because now we see the decline of the Assyrians and then the rise of the Babylonians. And we'll get into this a little bit further, but think about even the vision that Daniel has. And a part of that vision is there is, think with me, Assyria for a moment, and then there is the Babylonians for a moment, and then after that it's the Medes and Persians who, for a moment, and then it's the Greeks for a moment, and then it's the, um, the Romans. So God is ordering the countries, and we see this as a part of that history unfolding. But really importantly is this idea that in this passage, there are these significant words and phrases and even theological concepts. We're going to develop uh, pretty fully this idea of trust, which we see throughout the passage. If you go back to chapter 36 and we see throughout um, verse four, confidence that you have. Why do you rely? Verse six, do you rely on Egypt in verse six? Uh, Do not trust in the Lord. Don't say that you trust in the Lord. And then in verse 9 again, don't rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. And then even in verse 15, nor let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. We see what's going to be developed later on in this passage, the Holy One of Israel. Who is this Holy One of Israel? Why is it important for us to understand that? What about prayer? We see prayer throughout. Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord and he prays before him with this open letter of blasphemy before God. And we should be people who can learn even from Hezekiah about prayer. And then this theme of do not be afraid that's throughout a pronouncement that we see throughout scripture where God is saying, I am a covenant keeping God. Do not be afraid of your enemies. I will fight for you. And where we left last week, and I want us to pick up there. If you look at chapter 37, here's an important words as well for us to understand why we should trust the Lord. Chapter 37. And then in verse one, notice what it says. And when Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth and entered into the house of the Lord. And then in verse seven, um, verse six, God's response. And what does he say? Isaiah said to him, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not do not be afraid because of the words that you've heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. He says, and in verse seven, God is speaking. Behold, I will put a spirit in him and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land, which we alluded to already was fulfilled when Shanachar went back to his place of worship and his two sons killed him with the sword. But notice who is doing it. Look at verse 28 and 29. Have you not heard long ago? I did it. And he says, from ancient times, I planned it, which is a thought we see that really picks up in Isaiah chapter 40. Notice verse 35. Again, it is here. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city, nor even shoot an arrow here. Why? Because in verse 35, it says, I will defend for my sake and for my servant David's sake. So this personal engagement and protecting his people is repeated. Notice, if you will, go back to chapter 37, verse 26. He says, I did it. I planned it. That's important. So not just the personal nature of it, but we see here God's absolute and total sovereign plan unfolding. So what he is essentially saying is to Shanachar position. Yes, you have devastated these nations. Yes. You have brought them under your rule. Quite true. You've even now um, taken away my people, the northern tribes. Yes, you have done it. And you've even now come upon Judah and you've devastated these cities. Some would say probably 47 cities before he even now comes to Jerusalem. But what is so important here from ancient times, I planned it. Before there was a Shanachrib, This was in the divine plan of God that I would use you to be a chastisement to my people. And I would even use you to chasten other nations. You are under my sovereign hand. 
That's an important principle for us to understand that God's eternal plan for his creation is, in fact, unfolded. Then notice also in chapter um, 37, something that's important for us. Notice as well in verse 16, the Lord of hosts. So in Hezekiah's prayer, he lifts it before the Lord and he says he prayed to the Lord saying, oh, Lord of hosts. So important. So why the Lord of hosts? It's important that we recognize, he says, the Lord of hosts are the Lord of armies. And it would only be appropriate that in his context, Hezekiah would cry out to the Lord and say, the Lord of armies, please help us. We need your intervention. And so the Lord of armies is here. But what's unfortunate about it is that they should have trusted him before. And now uh, they're being um, attacked and now they fall upon him. Now it's not wrong. Um, it's better late than never, as one would say. But nonetheless, he should have had this courage and foresight and spirituality beforehand. And then there's a, a sixth truth that we find even in this passage. The passage, it's a passage of God's glory. And I just briefly um, alluded to it last week. But look at 37 and verse 20. 37 and 20, and what does it tell us there? Now, O Lord God, deliver us from from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord our God. Now, the word glory isn't used, but what is this? This is a declaration that let your glory be known to all the people. So we stop for a moment, and this theme of glory is important in the book of Isaiah, as it is through all of Scripture. Um, God's intention, as we see in Isaiah, is that all of his glory will be displayed throughout the earth. Now, Israel had failed. How did they fail? They failed because they were supposed to be a reflector of God's glory. So the northern tribes have now been exiled by the Assyrians. And then approximately 140 years later, what would happen? Not under Hezekiah, but what would take place? The people of God in the southern tribe, Judah, would be taken away by Babylon because what? They were failing in their commission, which was to demonstrate, to reflect, to be a light to the nations, to show the nations the glory of God. That was their purpose, and that is our purpose today. Why are we here? We're to be a people who reflect, who demonstrate the glory of God to the people around us. Um, Christ said it differently. He simply said this, you are the light of the, what did he say? Of the world. And they were supposed to be a light to the nations. So instead of being a, a nation that would reflect the glory of God and bask in the glory of God and preach the glory of God, what had they done? Instead, they had chosen to follow the vain idols of the nations. They chose to trust in the very limited resources and alliances of the nations. So Ahaz, he bows to Assyria. And even for a period of time, Hezekiah as well. And Hezekiah bows not only to um, Assyria, but he decides, well, I need protection from Assyria. I will create an alliance with the Egyptians. Limited resources, not all powerful, not all knowing, not all wise, unlike Yahweh. So in doing so, in failing in these ways, in trusting in these vain idols, and trusting in these limited resources and these alliances, what has happened? Ultimately, that means that they have rejected God. They rejected the God that created them as a people, a people that was supposed to represent his name. And it's also curious that they, like we can at times as well, they rejected God. They determined that God, in fact, was not trustworthy in light of an absolutely stellar, absolutely perfect record of faithful trustworthiness. Because the question would be, at what point in time could anyone and at what point in time could Israel or could Judah point to something in God's promises and in his covenant where he had failed? There is nothing. Now, the people in our own lives, um, there are obviously people that we trust more than others, right? 
We trust that person more because they have a, a record of faithfulness. They're, we would say they're dependable. They're a trustworthy person. And there are people that we would say they're not trustworthy because they tell you one thing and they find an excuse. They say that I'll be there for you, and they're not. They're not a trustworthy person. We sort of use the phrase, we call them, they're sort of flaky, do we not? And I'm not sure where that term originated, but I'm, I'm sure that some of it has to do with being flaky. means that you sort of, you easily fly around. The wind can kind of take you away. There's no stability to it. So you're, you're a flaky individual. You're not to be trustworthy. And when I was um, in San Francisco, I was talking to one of the pastors as he was taking me back to uh, my hotel last night. And we talked about the history of this church. I think they've been there 55 years, a church that started in a garage. And, um, and from there, now they have a really, and especially for San Francisco, a nice building that they had. They converted it. It took about two years to convert it to what they have, three stories. And that was an interesting story because they're thinking they had outgrown this other place where they were. We need a place. San Francisco It's difficult to find property. Absolutely. It, it, it just doesn't really exist. And if you find it, it's going to be incredibly expensive. And there was a building that became available and they put in a bid. And there wasn't even the highest bid. Uh, but the owner, he was ill at the time. He just wanted to get rid of it. And it was actually a Buddhist temple that had a higher bid. Yeah. And here's something that's quite ironic um, is this. The Buddhist temple who had the higher bid, they missed the opportunity to finalize the contract because generally in a Buddhist temple, you'll find a what? What's going to be there? A statue of whom? Of Buddha. And guess what? They had a 16 foot tall Buddha. And so they were trying to work with engineers and other people. How do we get Buddha into the building? Literally. No, no kidding. So they couldn't figure it out how to get these 16 foot Buddha into the building. So guess what? Who got the church? Amen. San Francisco Bible Church, because they couldn't get Buddha into his place of worship. I have a suggestion for it, which would have been like they did in the Old Testament, chop it in half and you can get it through the door and put some super glue back on it. But then he'd be like, you remember when the um, before uh, when the the Ark of the Covenant uh, was with the Philistines and what kept happening right to their God? It kept falling over. Amen. I just thought about that. What a, and they trusted the Lord. We don't have as much money. We need a building. We've outgrown this place. This is San Francisco. There's no way we can find a place that will accommodate us. And then they have one of the lowest bids. And then the Buddhists have more money. And guess what? But Buddha closed the door on them. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. We trust the Lord. And now that church is there in that community showing the glory of God. In a place that absolutely needs it. If there's a place that needs it, San Francisco needs it. And they're preaching the word of God. And those men are being faithful. So this idea, they, had, they were serving vain idols, false alliances, limited resources instead of Yahweh. So when we think about glory, though, but what is glory? Let's pause for a moment. It's easy to say, yes, the earth should be filled with the glory of God. But what is glory? A simple definition is this, and we'll go further. In one sense, let me give you a bit of a trailer for what we'll do once we get into the text later on. Glory is this. It's the psalm perfection of his being. The psalm perfections of God's being. Exodus 33, Moses asked, he says, Lord, let me see your glory. He wanted. And what was the response to Moses? The response to Moses was this. Um, you cannot see all of my glory. And he's, he passed by Moses and he allowed him to see his, uh, his back, if you will. No one can see all of me and even survive. He saw a limited manifestation of his glory. And why? Because in part, because God is too wonderful for him to behold. He could not be fully exposed to the splendor of God's glory. 
God's glory is also an, an attitude. And um, what do I mean by that? At least for us, let me state it better. Uh, we have to have the proper attitude when we approach God's glory. But how do we see God's glory? There are physical expressions of God's glory, and we see that in the scripture. Uh, we see a physical expression of God's glory, unapproachable light. That's God's glory manifested. God's glory in a cloud that would guide the people. That's a manifestation of the glory of God. Or we see God's glory in a fire that would be burning and would be consuming. That's God's glory. And even the psalmist tells us what? We look into the heavens and the heavens declare what? What does it say? They declare what? The glory of God. Because in looking into the heavens, we see the intelligence of God and the greatness of God and the vastness of God. So we see his glory. And then there's spiritual expressions of God's glory as well. It is demonstrated in the gospel. The glory of God is preached when we tell people that they're sinners, but yet Jesus Christ has come and he is made away by grace. This is an expression of the glory of God. An expression of the glory of God is when judgments come upon his people because God is saying, I'm a holy God, a holy God and this cannot be tolerated. The northern tribes, you are going into exile and prophetically spoken already the southern tribes will eventually go as well i am a holy god it is god ordering everything for his redemptive purposes and we see the glory of god so we can look into the heaven and we see the glory of god when the people of god there was a cloud the glory of god when the gospel is preached the glory of god now say for instance when the scripture states Romans 3 tells us what? For all have sinned and fall short of the what? The glory of God. What does that mean? It is a declaration that all men cannot. It is impossible for them to equal God's moral perfections. So you fall short of his glory. What does that mean? You fall short of his kindness and his compassion. And you fall short of his holiness. And you fall short of his mercy. All of us do. And this is why we need Christ. And this is why he must stand in the gap because we all fall short of the glory of God. And now this is what is so great about the glory of God. Now that this veil has been torn and now that we stand in right relationship with God, we can enter into that holy place and we can speak with this God. Because now the glory of God is not something that should frighten us from the sense of judgment, but there should be some sense of fear that's placed in us when we think about the glory of God. There should be when you look into the heavens and think about the vastness, I fear this God. And how is it that this God also still loves me? So this is what it means when man falls short of the glory of God. You're falling short of all of his perfection. In John's gospel, which is interesting, in John's gospel, which quite often refers to Isaiah, we see his glory displayed there. Turn with me. Look with me to John chapter 1. So glory, the sum perfections of God's being, it manifests itself at times we saw physical manifestations and there's spiritual manifestations of his glory. Man falls short of this glory. And in John's gospel, we see it demonstrated and displayed and even explained in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1, 14 says what? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his what? Glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Notice verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has exegeted him. He has says, here is God. And so when Jesus Christ was displaying his glory, what did men see? i pause for a moment. I'll let you interact with me for a moment here. Jesus Christ walking the earth, what did men see? How did they see his glory? What's that? In his actions. So what were those actions? What were some of those actions? His miracles, we saw the glory of God. And it says, and he he manifested his glory. Absolutely. You would see it in his miracles because that's the display of what? His absolute control of the elements of nature. God is beyond them. They must submit to him. 
That's a manifestation of his glory. How else did we see his glory? Oh, his resurrection I heard. So now there's what? There's power over death itself. What else did I hear? Right here. The crucifixion. We see the glory of God because now there's a demonstration that says sin must be what? Dealt with. And he would do it. He would stand in the gap. And we see also in the crucifixion the glory of God because that's an absolute. The perfection uh, when it comes to a demonstration of mercy and kindness. I will be a substitute for you. How else do we see the glory of God even in? Yes, back there. It's compassion, absolutely. Oh my, if you were to go to the word compassion and look at it, especially in the Gospel of Matthew, and he felt compassion for them. And what does it mean to have compassion? It means that one would have a, a stirring in their soul, a, a very rich word, especially a Hebrew word. And I think I've mentioned it to you before, has this idea, in a literal sense, it talks about the bowels. And why is that? Because uh, generally when we feel something for a person, we have compassion for them. Where do we feel it? You often will say, I have a feeling in my stomach, don't you? You're showing compassion towards them. We see compassion. That was a display of God's glory. Kindness, a display of his glory. When Christ was patient, a display of his glory. When he would turn and even ask, well, who touched me? This is the display of his glory. So all of his actions were communicating what is promised here in John 1.18, that he would be the one who would show the glory of God and he would explain God to people. And that's why Jesus Christ would say, if you've seen me, you have seen the, the Father. He was demonstrating that glory. So Jesus Christ, being the true son, Israel was a son, but Israel had failed as a son. Jesus Christ being the true son does what? I will demonstrate, I will be what Israel should have been. Jesus Christ being the second Adam now does what that first Adam should have done. He should have lived in that paradise and he should have resisted the temptation that came and he could have displayed the full glory of God. But neither did. So that's why we must have a second Adam. And Israel did not. And that's why we must have a true son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Israel was a servant. There was supposed to be a servant under Yahweh. And that's why we must have the suffering servant who can truly display the glory of God. Because all the others fail. And that's why Hezekiah is not the Messiah, because he failed. Jesus Christ is the ultimate. So in Isaiah, what we see here, creation is promised something that it will be filled with the glory of God. This creator will make all things right. And this ultimate king who is superior to Ahaz and Shennacherib and any other king, he will make all things right on this earth. And then one day this creator will bring everything together and it will be burned again and he will roll out the very universe again and make all things right and we'll see the perfection of God's glory. So his prayer is appropriate that all men would see who you are. That's our purpose in life. Now, if our purpose in life is to be a person that's displaying the glory of God, if we're to be, which we are, to be lights in the world, then we have to trust this God, do we not? How can we say that we are a light in the world and we're making a pronouncement to those around us, but we don't trust God the way that we should? Now, I do qualify the way that we should. I know all of us wish that we trust the Lord perfectly, don't you? There's not a person in this room that wouldn't say, uh, I don't want to trust the Lord perfectly. We all want to do that. And I would say in, our, in the process of sanctification, we're all growing closer to the Lord. And then we have experiences that remind us again of God's faithfulness and we trust him all the more. And I'm hoping that as we walk through these um, chapters, that we'll, it will enlarge your view of God and you can walk away saying, I have reason again. I have more stored in my heart and in my mind in the archives of my heart that I can trust God the way that I should. Now, turn with me, having said that, 
to 2 Kings 18. And we're going to begin to work our way through this passage and really looking at 36, 1 to 3, the stage is set. Hezekiah's reign, the 14th year of his reign, which would make it 701, 702 B.C. So now what had happened before that, though, um, Hezekiah has already rebelled. The other nations that have rebelled as well, the Babylonians had rebelled. And what Shennacherib has to do is to put down these rebellions. And he's been doing that throughout his kingdom. And now he comes to Jerusalem, who has now rebelled against him, or Judah, who has rebelled. And now he wants to lay siege to Jerusalem. In one sense, the final city. Once I conquer Jerusalem, then Judah is conquered. He has just... He has sent the army from Lachish, Lachish, about 30 miles from Jerusalem. I've been there. I've seen it. And what's interesting about it, uh, there are inscriptions that are there that are telling you about Shennacherib sending his army there. And you can look around and you can actually see if you um, look around the city itself, you can see where they, um, there's a siege ramp that you can still see, but also you can see where they were camped. You can just see little spots where they gathered stones and put them together. And it looks like right there was maybe probably a point where a number of soldiers would have been gathered. And there's another wall and probably another point where soldiers would have been on the lookout that's still around Lachish today. So now here he is about 30 miles away. The rapture comes to Jerusalem. He makes this pronouncement and eventually now this army has come to lay siege of God's people. And as I said before, in sort of this moment of poetic justice, what happens, the same place where as what Isaiah said to Ahaz, trust the Lord, is now the same place where the rapture stands and says, don't trust the Lord. He cannot be trusted. The gods of the lands trusted their gods, and where are they now? The kings of the lands trusted their God, and where are they now? They have all been laid waste, which was, in fact, true. The Assyrians were a mighty, warring people, and at times devastating in what they would do to their enemies. And that was, in part, how they would intimidate, whether it be fraying a person. And that's, if you don't know what fraying is, um, that's hard impaling someone and having their impaled bodies outside of their capital, decapitating and putting their head on a pole. So you would essentially say, do you really want to rebel against us? No. And now they come upon Yahweh. He doesn't even have as much history as these other gods. Who is Yahweh? If Yahweh was so great, and think about it from their standpoint, if Yahweh was so great, why didn't he protect the northern tribes? We took them away, so why do you think that it's possible that you'll remain? If Yahweh was so great, why couldn't they thwart us off? If Yahweh was so great, Hezekiah, why did you have an alliance with the Egyptians? Just trust your God. And what has happened here is that by their own actions, the people of God have brought a a blasphemy against the Lord. And it's allowed the enemies of God to have a sense of confidence that they shouldn't have. And they have, in one sense, rolled out the carpet for them in this way. Now, I want you to notice something. Hezekiah, they're preparing for war. We know that he's going to trust the Lord. We know the rest of the story. But there's something else that we should understand. Notice, first, his initial compromise. Notice his initial compromise. Look with me at 2 Kings 18, 2 Kings 18. And it says what? Notice his initial compromise. In verse 13, it says, Then Rabshakeh stood and cried with a loud voice in Judean and said, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you, nor let... Sorry. I'm sorry, I'm reading the um, account, the Isaiah account, um, 13, 18, or 18, 13. 
It says, now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Shenacherib comes, the fortified cities. He's laid waste to the cities. He has seized them. He gives him all the gold uh, from the house of the Lord. He even, in verse 16, at that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the door of the temple of the Lord and from the doorpost which Hezekiah, king of Judah, had overlaid and gave it to the king of Assyria. So we have here initial compromise. An initial compromise from the standpoint of instead of trusting the Lord, he is essentially saying, I will buy you off. And what does he do? There's an indictment even against him and the standpoint that he takes it from where? Where does it come? From the temple of God, the same place where he would later go to do what? Lay out this letter before the Lord and pray, and he should have done this now. And there's a bit of irony that's in that as well. Here is a place where later on God will answer you and come to your aid. But in this moment, you're compromising and you're deciding, I am fearing and let me pay off the king of Assyria. So there's initial compromise. He's going to pay tribute to the king of Assyria in the same way that his father Ahad, Ahaz it set up. And then he would eventually do it until he was bold enough to rebel. But here's something else that's interesting, just to give you the backdrop to what's happening. Look at 2 Chronicles 32. 2 Chronicles 32. Now, he naturally prepared. He naturally prepared. We should understand this as well. He naturally prepared. So when we think about the character of someone who trust God, there may be moments when, like Hezekiah, there was initial compromise, but he also naturally prepared for war. Um, Second Chronicles 32, beginning in verse 2, now when Hezekiah saw Shennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he decided with the officers and with his warriors to cut off the water, the supply of water from the springs which were outside the city, and they helped him. And so many people assembled and stopped up all the springs and the stream which flowed through the region, saying, why should the kings of Assyria come and find abundant water? Verse 5, and he took courage and rebuilt all the the wall that had been broken down and erected towers on it and built another outside the wall and strengthened the millow in the city of David and made weapons and shields in great number. And he appointed military officers over the people and gathered them into the square at the city gate and spoke encouragingly to them, saying, be strong and courageous. Does that does that wording sound familiar? Because what did uh, what was the word to God, to the people of God as they were going to the land? And what was the word from Joshua to the people? Be strong and courageous. And ultimately, the Lord our God is with us. So he speaks in a way that he should speak. He encourages them in the midst of this coming battle. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all this horde that is with him. So this great army that's with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. Amen to that. And does that language sound familiar? Of course it does, even in Paul. Then who can be against us if God is what? Is with us. And then in verse 8, notice this. This is so great. Verse 8, with him is only the arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied, that is, relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. Yes, he's a great warrior. He's a great king. He has put down the Babylonians. He has put down the, the Syrians for us. He has taken away our northern tribes. He has wiped out all the cities before coming to us. And perhaps we can even hear the cries that are coming from Lachish. But yet, remember this, it's just an arm of flesh versus the Lord God. It doesn't matter. If he's for us, then it doesn't matter who is against us. So he naturally prepared. And what do I mean by that? Yes, war is coming. 
And so he prepares them for war. It's not wrong in the midst of a situation that may seem to be overwhelming to be naturally prepared. But yet, ultimately, God is going to say, you will not lift even a sword. I will fight this battle alone. Now, there are times in Scripture where, indeed, uh, God used weaponry with David. David was a man of war and he went out and fought and he fought battles. And we see time and time again throughout biblical history and they slew so many and they fought against and with the Lord's help, they prevailed. So that's not wrong to make preparation for war. But here what we see happening is make preparation, but ultimately God has to fight the battle. And in this case, it would be an extreme case because they would not even lift a sword. Now, let's move on. We know something else about Hezekiah is this. He reformed for God. He reformed for God. And if we go back to 2 Kings 18, notice what it says in verses 3 and 4. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah, which is this a hideous um, deity. He broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. And why was it necessary to do that? Because the people were worshiping now, even that, which should have been a symbol of deliverance and of God's hands. Now they perverted even that. And he says he broke that in pieces. For it says, and for, for until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nahashton. Think about that. The people are perverted. Um, in their worship. But he brings about reform to the people of God. So he was a reformer. But also this he trusted in the Lord. Notice verse 5. What does it say about Hezekiah? He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. Trust in the Lord. Let me give you some examples of this throughout Scripture, and we're going to dive in even further uh, probably next week. 2 Kings 18.5, obviously he trusted in the Lord. Look with me at Psalm 62. Psalm 62 and verse 8, and what does it say there? Psalm 62.8 says, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah, he says. Make sure that in every aspect of life that you have a trust in the divine. And notice what's connected to it, the sense of intimacy with the Lord as well. Part your heart before him. Be a person that is a worshiper of God and you can be encouraged by it. Look at Psalm 115. Psalm 115, verse 9. And what does it say there? O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Then in verse 10, it says, O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Then verse 11, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Uh, The psalmist is obviously trying to bring about a point, is he not? And the refrain is obvious. God is your help. He is your ultimate protector. Then in Isaiah 26 and 4, I'll just read it. It says, trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. And the imagery is helpful because saying here, when we're looking for stability, God is that place of stability. Notice also in 2 Kings 18, notice verse 6, 2 Kings 18 In verse 6, what else does it say about Hezekiah? So not only did he reform for God, he trusted for God, he prepared, if you will, but also this, notice verse 6, it says, For he clung to the Lord God. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. So he clung to God. Now, ESV is going to say he held fast to God. Uh, um, One other translation, the Net Bible says he was loyal to God. 
this final trait is absolutely a must. It is important to cling to God, to hold fast to, to not let go of. And in order for anyone to cling to something, it requires another action, another another attitude, another decision, does it not? If I cling to this, I cannot still hold on to the world because I'm clinging on to the Lord. It's a beautiful image that we have here. So here is a man that trusted God, that clung to the Lord, that reformed for God, and he would trust in this moment of need. Also, 2 Kings 18, notice verse 7. Notice verse 7. There is a sense of confidence here. We saw it in Chronicles, but we see it stated again here in verse 7. And it says this, And the Lord was with him wherever he went. He prospered and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. So now the strength has been conjured up from him to rebel against the king of Assyria, whereas before he had compromised. But now the Lord has strengthened his spirit so that he can do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. There's a confidence that's offered by a God that's trustworthy when God is with us. A final thought for us, if you will, when we think about this reality, God is with us. I was um, in my time with the men uh, in San Francisco yesterday. Is one text that we just went to very familiar in Ephesians 1. And what's one of the, the great truths that we find in Ephesians 1? The idea that us being in Christ. Now here in this episode, God is with us. That is, he is our protector. He is our shield. He is our help. He is the one who will fight our battles. And then we can take these principles, this attitude, and they will be demonstrated or should be demonstrated in our life. In whatever circumstance we may find ourselves that requires it. But as I thought about God with us, uh, what I must first think is, yes, that is so true. He is with us. He fights our battles. But yet that is because I am in him. And what does Paul tell us? He reminds us of this great truth in Ephesians 1, that we have these blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Verse 4, that he has chosen us in him. He tells us in the the latter part of verse four, in love, he has predestined us to himself. He says in verse six, in the beloved, he has freely bestowed on us this grace. Verse seven, it says in him, we have redemption through his blood. And then because of this, he has lavished upon us the riches of his grace. And then in him, what else do we have? In him, we have and inheritance, and in him we have been sealed. So we think, and so whatever I face in life, I don't face it alone. God is a trustworthy God, and let me rely on him. Amen?